When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shirley, bringing you politics about the boy bits every weekday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. You can listen on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode is the party conference caravan moves on. Yes, I know we've got the SMP this weekend, but the Times Radio focus group convenes again to ask a panel of people who voted Labour or Tory at the last election. Now they're not too sure. They end up leaning more towards Labour, although you wouldn't think of it, given what they said about Keir Starmer. We asked them what, if anything, they noticed from the party conference season. Turns out the glitter man has got better cut through than, than most politicians. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at the news with these two. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yeah, as we always are on a Thursday, we're joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hello, Manveen. Hello. Appearing via Zoom, is that because you haven't baked anything? I haven't baked anything. Also, I am a festering mound of lurgy, so apologies for assaulting your ears with this. I sound like sandpaper. I but, can't um... pass comment as someone who's, who's <laughs> sounded like a variety of Barry White impressionists over the last two weeks. <laughs> oh, God, can we have that back? Yeah, yeah, it was it was sort of early early this week. It was it was bad. Anyway, we, we appreciate you still dialing in because other some of your <laughs> colleagues, uh, you know, James Marriott took the day off just because it was his dad's birthday. So we appreciate you turning up. Oh, but how loyal with the with the lurking. Uh, this week's Matthew is he's back. Matthew Holhouse from the Economist. Matthew, how are you? I'm really well. How are you? You've done all the party conferences. I did. Well, I did Labour in the Tories. So, so did I didn't go. No, you, my colleague went to Lib Dems. I was, I was travelling at the time. I, I, was I, I, with, uh, I went David to, Lammy in Washington. I, I went to the Lib Dems, and that's why I got the lurgy. Uh, <laughs> how did you find it? I thought it was really interesting. You know, you know where we are in the cycle because when you know you, you think, the, how am I going to strategize this? What what's going to be interesting? And you can tell where we are in the cycle because at the Tories, all the action was on the fringes, and the, the speeches were a bit of an afterthought. Whereas at Labour, all the action was on the stage. And the fringes were sort of, you know, cheerleading and applause and a bit of context around that. And that tells you a little bit about where we are. I thought, um, we were just saying before we came on, I mean, the, there's quite a low bar set for Labour, isn't there? You know, because there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of commentary about how they've, you know, managed to wear suits and things, which I, I like to think that our standards for government should be a little bit higher than, you know, can you put your trousers and a tie in the morning? Uh, you know, I like to think sort of policy is also good. Uh, but you know, Labour Labour were very very slick and very very confident. There was a moment where um, you know, obviously, the, you know, no complacency, no complacency, absolutely no. This this could be like you know Hillary in twenty 
2016 and um, there was a member of the Shadow Cabinet who was asked on a fringe whether this was like 1997 and they just started laughing sort of maniacally, you know, just sort of, you know, after three years, three days, this sort of glee erupted from them because yeah. they do sense that they yeah, are yeah, on yeah. the they're on the cusp of something big. And when you have these sort of unpredictable or, you know, slightly volatile poles, you can hit tipping points where suddenly, you know, what looks like a fairly narrow win can actually become really quite how they've big. Got giddy. I remember being at the Labour conference last year when a mm. poll came through, a Times poll came through, giving them a massive lead and the Shadow Cabinet Minister we were with definitely had, I'd say their eyes moistened. I, I wouldn't say they right, openly right, wept, but they, right. were, they were emotional. But that, that poll that came out during Labour, it was something like, what was it, 36 yeah, points yeah, yeah. or something enormous like that. Would any of us have thought at that point exactly. that we would still be looking at polls coming out, you know, week in, week out, that are saying 18, 19, 20, yeah, 22? That, that, I, do, you know, I don't think anybody expected the stability of the polling. And that's why we've seen uh, Rishi Sunak trying a different strategy because what he's tried so far hasn't worked. Right, anyway, right, right. let's move away from that because actually the, the thing that massively, as for entirely understandable reasons, overshadowed what was going on uh, in Liverpool at the Labour Party conference was what was going on in Israel. And I wanted to sort of look at this question of what's going on online. I mean, as a conflict, every tiny bit of it has been being played out, obviously involving news, but also on social media. Social media has been urged to deal with violent content and misinformation and disinformation from the Israel-Hamas conflict, uh, which is circulating on their platforms. Um Marvin, what have you, you made of this? Because I suppose there's two things. There's violent content and whether or not anyone should be able to watch that at any time. And it, it's grim. Um, and then there's the question of sort of deliberate misinformation. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's often said the first casualty in any war is the truth. And we've certainly saw that with Russia and Ukraine. This is the first time we're sort of seeing the start of a war with Elon Musk in charge of, of what's now called X. And, and it's much harder to navigate what's really happening because, you know, Twitter, as it was, is awash with disinformation. And it's interesting, it's not just coming from Israel or the Palestinians. You know, there's a, a lot of actors out there who are contributing. There, There's Russian disinformation around. I saw this amazing, it looked sort of so real, but it was like sort of a BBC video they put out trying to show that the Ukrainians had provided Palestinians with weapons. But, you know, it's getting slicker than it's ever been before. There's a lot of AI-generated stuff. Um, and, you know, for some reason, a lot of stuff coming out of the uh, sort of out of Asia as well, which is sort of contributing to all of this. So it's I think if anything, it's harder than ever to know what's really happening. And that became really clear with this story about, um, you know, babies being beheaded, where you even managed to get to the point where the president of the United States of America stands up and makes a speech about something that, you know, he's been led to be to believe is, is true. But it's all come from. And this probably wasn't even disinformation, it was probably misinformation. It was probably sort of, you know, one soldier saying something to an Israeli journalist, which then sort of took flight and travelled around the world. And the moment you sort of try to pin it down with with fact, you suddenly realise that, uh, you know, the entire story sort of comes comes crumbling down. Um, but it's just it just makes it harder than ever to know what's really happening on the ground. It's a, it's a, and uh, the, the distinction that Marvin was making there, Matthew, is really important. Uh, misinformation and dis mm. misinformation basically sort of things which are not, Right. Right. I think this is right, isn't it? And disinformation is all deliberate attempts to... Yeah, exactly. ...to lie, basically. Yes. And yes. in a conflict where there are, you know, differing first-hand accounts, mm. the fog of war, mm. misinformation is part of the, you know, it, it's hard to avoid. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there's two baskets of things going on. I mean, some of it is, is just sort of horrific terrorist content, which, you know, 
media organizations always have this dilemma of portraying accurately and truthfully you know, the reality of what war does to human beings and human lives, balanced against, you know, the respect for, you know, basic sort of dignity of the victims and their families and the need to put that in, you know, the most truthful context that one can and balanced against the need not to serve as um, propaganda outlets for terrorists. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and particularly, you know, we saw with with ISIS and with sort of white, you know, white supremacist terrorism, um, you know, uh, as has always historically been the case, a, a real sort of appetite for coverage and the glorification of this violence. So, so news organisations have always had to very sort of carefully balance those trade-offs. But at least with established news organisations, there is there is something resembling a process and there is accountability. There are people who can be, you know, called to account for it either through regulators or or through sort of, you know, the, the court of public opinion. Social media is more of a, you know, an, an, an accountable space. Now, the, the truth is that Twitter particularly, under the previous management and pre- previous ownership, was an incredibly effective... Um, system for disseminating news and you know multiple controversies they rarely got it right but at least there was a sort of an ecosystem yeah, that yeah. worked you know it was like this is the modern telegraph and they um you know verified users and attempts at content moderation what you've seen under the new ownership is actually that system really being dismantled through the you know, stripping back of moderation the fact that anybody can pay to be a verified you know yeah. a, a, a blue tick user and the introduction of, of monetization. So basically now the more clicks you get, the more money you make. So we're seeing a mixture of, you know, what you might call, you know, innocent mistakes, hostile actors, but also people, it seems from some of the analysis, people just out to make money. Yeah. So people uploading stuff that they know is just junk, but, you, know, vi- you know, bits of video games saying it's an airstrike. But if that gets, you know, X, X thousand that, retweets, that, they get their element check. of this. There's the right. sort of, there's the uh people you know journalists on the ground maybe putting out stuff without being able to check it sure that you know misinformation fog of war mm. there's you know uh, malign actors mm. uh, trying to interfere in it and there's just people chasing clicks and, there there and are building there are, platforms there are there are, there are teenagers you know yeah. waiting for checks for 500,000 10,000 dollars because they're getting traffic from it yeah. now so it's it's the truth is that it has just become a less useful platform for understanding what's going on. What I don't understand about that is that ha- why then he hasn't done something about it because, you know, I've, I use it an awful lot in my work but it's clearly there's less engagement than there was and that must be costing him money because fewer people are using it in, in the same way but anyway, we'll see. Oh, and then the, the big hit as well is, is advertising. So there's yes. a piece in the FT with Martin Sorrell, you know, the yeah. you know, advertising uh, giant guru um, who's saying that, you know, lots of advertisers are basically keeping away because this is, you know, you do not want to sell Soap or confectionery next to terrorist content. Yeah, yeah. You know that's the truth of it. That's interesting. Um, let's move on because there's another great. Mm. There's a there's a story that I wanted wanted to talk about. It's it's one of my favourite stories. that sort of sums up everything that's that's wrong with Britain. Uh, Captain Tom, uh, his family has confessed <laughs> that they kept eight hundred thousand pounds from the three books that he wrote. His daughter Hannah Ingram Moore. Uh, took time out from her home spa uh, to speak to Piers Morgan on Talk TV. When I first walk in, the first thing I see is a luxurious bar pool. That's got nothing to do with Captain Tom. We should have done it in a different way. Did you feel any qualms being paid from public donations? No. I should have said no. Neither of you have ever made any money directly from the foundation for personal gain. Not a penny. You've appeared 
at awards ceremonies. I was paid £18,000 for that. And how much did the charity get? 2000 I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, where to start with this, man, Vane? I mean, <laughs> if you need an example of how a country loses the plot, it's, it's an event organiser paying £18,000 to the daughter of a man who walked around his garden. <laughs> I, I mean, it is baffling, but also that event was called the Captain Tom Foundation Charity Do. So you sort of think they shouldn't have been having to pay anything yeah. for her to turn up. It's just, it's so remarkable. And it's also, you know, you're, you're right. I hadn't really thought of it as sort of the state of a state of the nation story, but it, it does sort of sum up generationally where we've gone. You know, you start off with Captain Tom, this, you know, remarkable, plucky man who manages to do the extraordinary Thing, you know, at his age to, to do laps of his garden all for the right cause. And you sort of think, well, that that's something to be proud of. And then very quickly it descends into a, a money grab uh, in order to build a spa at home, which is, I mean, it's just so bizarre. You know, he, if, you, if you go back and look at the, the, the books that she's made so much money out of. Three you know, books? He does, Who's buying three books? these things? <laughs> but, I know that too, but he did say in the introduction that he hoped it was a, an opportunity to raise even more money for charity for, NH for the NHS. Uh, and that's clearly not what's happened. So it feels like the family have completely ignored his wishes. I don't think he sort of figures in this at all. But, and it's just, um, I'm glad it's come out because I think a lot of people would have carried on contributing to the, to the foundation, thinking it was all going to a very good cause. And clearly it's not. I mean, it's just, I mean, the whole thing, the fact that she, they were selling Captain Tom beer, wine calendars, <laughs> greetings know. cards, lunch There's boxes, much. water bottles. Um, it, it's awful. It's awful. Uh, I think it, it's, 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 the, it's the greatest British scandal since uh, Charles Ingram coughed his way to a million pounds. Like, <laughs> million. Well, I mean, it's fantastic. He did not cough. No, sorry. He sorry. was the coffee he, major, he, but he, 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 yeah. yes, someone else I, I think. Uh, if, if Olivia Coleman and Jim Broadbent are available for an ITV tea time drama, uh... <laughs> it I, is a very British scandal. It's it's scandal so well. It turns out he wasn't walking around the garden; he was just marking out the changing rooms for a spa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it ends, it ends, in a, it ends in a row over over a planning application because it, 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 I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, it's it is Britain in a, in a teapot. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's because uh, I remember it came out a few weeks ago that, that she'd. Uh, she put in the press release, which she was trying to drum up interest in him doing his walk around the garden, mm, mm. and said, uh, she put out a press release saying, call, calling him Captain Tom, and he said, you can't do that, I retired in 1945. <laughs> <laughs> but she did it anyway. It just created this circus around the poor man. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, I love it. Him. I love it. Lesson. And, uh, yeah, it's well worth watching the whole interview um, uh, with with Piers Morgan on Talk TV. Um it's, it's a sign that we are, as a nation, completely loony. Right, now, I'm still joined by Matthew Holhouse of The Economist and Manvi mm -hmm. from Story of Our Times podcast. Let's talk about bed bugs. Pet control specialists say they're the busiest they've ever been as they tackle bed bug infestations across the country. Uh, John Horsley, technical support officer of the British Pest Control Association, joins us now. Hi, John. Morning. Uh, so, how, how busy are you right now? How have we managed to get five minutes with you? <laughs> yeah, it's been busy. Um, we have, uh, you know, as a, 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 an industry, we have seen a slight increase in call-outs. Um, that hasn't resulted in an increase in actual infestations. Um, you know, we've had a mix of um, people just curious about what things are they're finding, 
Um, and, you know, people have obviously found infestations as well, but the, the numbers haven't changed dramatically. So people just finding things in their house and panicking and then calling you in? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been a long time where people have believed, you know, bed bugs are, um, you know, invisible and things like that. And now there's been obviously a lot of information out there over the last sort of um, 10 days. Uh, people are becoming more aware of, of what they're finding um, and they're just asking more questions, which is which is only natural. Uh, is this making you want to itch already, uh, Matthew? Uh, Oh, I mean, there's 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 a hierarchy, isn't there, of things you don't want to find in your house, and bed bugs are up there. <laughs> I think I'd probably go rats, mice, bed bugs, Cap- Captain Tom's daughter, Captain. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Shaking a money tin <laughs> through your letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Vader, you enjoying the bed bugs? You already feel rough. Are you worried oh, about I- bed bugs? I I am I am I've sort of like the moment I saw the story about them being on the tube I sort of I started to work out if I could walk across London. Um, I hate I hate stuff like that. It just it does oh. make you sort of scratch oh, it's and advance. Me feel weird again. So John, <laughs> you know, tell horrible. us what we need to know about I would, them. What do I they would sort of add cockroaches to that list? Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've had a moth infestation. So like honestly, oh. if anybody has mm. any tips on how to get rid of them, tweet me. Well, John, uh, John, can you help chat. with moths? Yes, please. What uh, do you do? Is it moths, um, like fabric moths or moths with food? Fabric moths. Fabric, fabric yeah. Moths. So, I've, um, I've tried lavender. I've tried everything. Help. It, it's, it, once they get ingrained, they're very difficult to control. Best thing is to um, speak to a professional. Uh, you may need sort of an integrated pest management approach. So one technique won't solely work in some cases. Um, and, you know, you might have to treat the larvae that are in the carpet. It's actually the larvae that does the damage. Um, the adults tend to not feed in, in most cases. Um, it's just the larvae that are damaging the fabrics and then when they pupate into the adult they'll fly off to to mate um, so it's treating the larvae that's in the carpet now these can be quite deep in the carpet um, so you may need to, to do a, a treatment underneath and on top of the carpet uh, last, last summer I actually yeah. ironed my carpets because I had some moths in it, and it you absolutely... ironed them? yeah I mean because they're around the edges and, and, and it was because apparently that works does so that they're... work John? Uh, heat and yeah so freezing heat treatments are two sort of treatments that we would do if you have like a delicate fabric um, somewhere like a museum if they had clothes moths in that fabric they would use a, a giant freezer basically um, okay, to, yeah, to, yeah. To, to, to treat I had, that inside I had, I had lovely smooth carpets by the end of it anyway. I, left a, I, le- I left an iron just on a carpet once and it left a triangle mark um, but no moths no could you deal yeah. with that John? <laughs> no <laughs> this is good this is good news you can use so uh, John in terms of the bed bugs what do we need to be looking out for um, so, and what po- you know tell us what we need to know and, and how we can stop them getting in so bed bugs are an insect that loves to travel um, and they're very well adapted to that traveling uh, and all their sort of behavior results in them wanting to go somewhere else as well. Um, so, yeah, they do like to travel. They're, they're fairly small insect, about the size of an apple seed um, and sort of very similar in color. So they can range from light brown to dark brown. And if they're recently fed, there may be sort of a red tinge to them as well. Um, preventing them is quite difficult. Uh if you stay in somewhere like a hotel or you buy some secondhand furniture, they're sort of the two common places that we see infestations coming from. Um, if they've got bed bugs in them, um, then uh, you've got to be careful not to bring them back. So checking your suitcases and things is sort of a priority. Um, if you go to a hotel, it's always worth just having a look, make sure you've not got any sort of red marks on the sheets. Um, they will excrete a, a sort of a black dot as well. So you'll tend to see lots of black dots in a, a group together. Um, so be vigilant of what you're seeing. Um, if you do find that you've taken them home, uh, you know, 
try and wash sheets on a hot wash um, and a tumble dryer if you, if you can. Um, and just be mindful not to spread them around your house. So if you've got them in the bedroom, don't take your bed sheets downstairs and like leave them in your living room or leave them in your kitchen before yeah, putting yeah. them in the washing machine. Um, so if you, uh, if you do go on holiday and you've got a suitcase, is there any, a bit like when people joined the pandemic, people were sort of leaving their, their shopping in the shed for a couple of days, hoping that that would mean they wouldn't catch COVID. Is there, like, should you like leave your suitcase in the shed? No, it's one of those things that, you know, it's it's difficult to stop them. Um, but if you know you've been somewhere that's had them, um, it's, you know, be have a, an insight into what you're bringing back. It's always worth having a look in the suitcase. Um, but, you know, don't change your holiday plans because we've been reported bed bugs. It's not really changed. Um, yeah. Pirates are having a particular problem. Um, but, you know, it, we have cities where they'll have a problem at one point and then, you know, we'll manage that problem and then it'll tend to disappear for a few years. Um, but Paris is maybe just going through that similar system um, Good where they've just got a particular problem at the minute. Uh, this, this has been the most useful thing we've done on the radio. Now, just think of that, John. John Halsey, Technical <laughs> Support Officer, the Pest Control Association, British Pest Control Association. Like you were saying, you know, ask an expert. They are getting lots of calls, which is people finding things in their house. And if you can't get through to them, turns out Matthew Holhouse will come around and iron your carpets. <laughs> maybe you could go around and iron... You can go around an Iron Man with these carpets. I know, that is genuinely very useful. I'm going to give that a go. It was quite hard work, I can tell you. It was hot. It was hot. But... Was it? Your yeah, Iron was, was hot? Well, no. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a warm day and it was the end of, <laughs> made, quite, made quite a steamy room by the end of it. But, but no moths. No so, moths. No moths. Lovely Maybe carpets, that's what but... Tina Turner was doing when she was at the steamy windows. <laughs> Matthew Holhouse from The Economist and Manvin Man, of course, from Stories of Our Times. And you can download Stories of Our Times uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Right, up next is the Times Radio Focus Group. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Every month on Times Radio, we convene a monthly focus group of voters to assess how the government is getting on and see what matters to people outside the Westminster bubble. James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, who now runs JL Partners as ever, was in the hot seat. Enjoys me now. Hi, James. 
Morning, Matt. Uh, so let's start, because I don't think we did it last month, and I've, I, I felt bad. So let's start, as we always do, with the disclaimer. Uh, what is a focus group and what is it not? Absolutely, Matt. So a focus group is not intended to be representative. That's rule number one. Uh, it's not a poll with 1,000, 2,000 people. It's a group of six to eight people, and it's about diving deeper into the views that people express in the polls. Um, it allows us to get a sense, for example, of that Labour lead that we see in the polls. How do people really feel about Labour under the surface? How strong is that is is that lead? And many other issues as well, used a lot by politicians too. And this time round, um, we spoke to uh, a mix of Conservative and Labour 2019 voters who are now undecided about how they'd vote. And we went to three key constituencies for the next election. Uh, the constituency of Wimbledon, Rother Valley, and in the southwest, Filton and Bradley Stoke. And uh, why are we doing them in particular? What? Because some people will say, well, look, if the Labour Party is 20 points ahead of the polls, most people who are going to switch have switched already. But actually, I suppose what we're getting at is that even people who might tell a pollster, I'm going to vote Labour, well, if you stop them in the street and ask them, they might be a bit under... You know, the, 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 the strength of that vote is what we're testing. Uh, the strength of the vote, and also it's a huge group come the next election. Um, there's lots of voters who are currently undecided. And there's even more voters who could yet change their mind. Um, and, you know, we do speak to switchers all yeah, the time. I like we did last group. month. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Okay, well, let's dive straight in then uh, with uh, what this group of former Tory, former Labour voters said when you asked them, how's the government doing? A bit better than recent years. Promising lots and not delivering lots. They are saying that we're doing things and they're not doing things, but things are better than before. People are losing trust. Everything is just stagnant. I just feel disillusioned with them. For normal people, it's just so difficult. What are they doing? Disillusioned, confused. I feel let down. Even though inflation is killing everyone and it's ridiculous, it seems just to me a bit more stable, as in it just doesn't seem all over the place. I think it's all a bit woolly. I see nothing in this current government that is relatable to me as a working class man. And that's why generally I feel disillusioned from them as a government. I see nothing in them that makes me want to believe that they they got my best interests at heart. I think they've got their wallets' interests at heart. It's so much wastage as well, especially during COVID time. Like, like PPE contracts were given to mates as well. Like how shocking is that? Quasi Quantag <coughs> crashed the economy with his mini, mini budget. So for me, it's been a bit of a, a comic act, really. Um, so slightly better than recent years, but that's about as good as things get, James, which is, you know, given that half the group voted to it the last election, should worry them. Yeah, I, it was it was pretty bleak. And, and uh, a couple of people said things are better there, but they weren't saying it in relation to the last few months. They were saying it in relation to, you know, things like COVID. So I don't think it was picking up any real improvement on the government side and, Anyway, like we say, you know, the polls show that that hasn't improved. If anything, it's got slightly worse. So, yeah, very bleak. And, you know, you heard it there, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss crashed the economy. Um, that is what Labour's, you know, line word for word is. Um, that's how people feel. Uh, and a year on, um, that's still how people feel. And that points to the usefulness of focus groups, that uh, picking up what people are saying, how normal people are describing 
what's happening in the world and repeating it back to them. Or, you know, you keep on repeating something until the public start using it. There's a sort of symbiotic relationship of of phrases which, you know, it's how you latch onto a slogan often, you know, take back control or get Brexit done, born out of, in part, just listening to how normal people speak. Well, let's focus then on the party conference season. Uh, we kicked off, well, we didn't ask them about the Lib Dems. I mean, I had a nice time, but we'll, uh, we'll just focus on the Conservative uh, Party conference. Most of the gr- uh, members of the group said it had basically completely passed them by, but a couple of them did have something to say. I didn't watch it, but I tend to know what, what Rishi Sunak tends to so say, really. Normie says his dad was a GP, his mum was a pharmacist. So I think he's trying to relate to, to say that he's a normal person with a normal background, but he has so much wealth. Even if you are from a good background, it's sometimes it's hard to relate to him as a, as a person. There's two or three clips that I saw, one of which was uh, Suella Braveman. They were with a dog, and the, the heel of their shoe was on the dog's tail and she was just busy carrying on with her conversation they're so easy to make into villains because they do stupid stupid things sunak again um, it's just empty there's nothing that makes me think yes you're the man to take us forward what would you do you think you need to see tom own who you are i don't need someone who has grown up in the relative privilege that Sunak has to try and be like me. You're nothing like me. I'd respect him a little more if he was able to say, look, I'm not going to be able to relate to average Joe in the street, but I'll make my every effort to make his life as good as I can. Um, I mean, the wealth thing coming up again, James, and the, the, the sense of the benefit of the doubt that, you know, well, he, well, he's not doing this for the money seems to have been replaced by he's out of touch and I can't relate to him. But that thing about uh, being empty, you know, didn't even bother really watching it, didn't really notice it. Um, there's this slight sense they've just stopped listening, that they're not, you know, they've decided there's nothing going on with Rishi Sunak, so I don't need to pay any attention. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. I think, you know, also party conferences in general don't, you know, I think we're, we're the weird ones, right, uh, for being so plugged into them, um, whereas most people only notice if something really major happens. But it is a pretty, you know, d- depressing reaction if you're if you're in number ten right now. Um, the main thing that cut through from the Tory conference was Suella Braverman standing on a dog's tail, um, <laughs> which uh, is not exactly perhaps on the number ten strategic strategic grid. Um, I, I think the thing that really stood out for me there was a wider point about about Rishi Sunak and that chap there saying, "Own who you are." And it's something we get again and again that, uh, you know, that they that they know that he brings out this line about, you know, the pharmacy and his parents and, uh, you know, his, his sort of upbringing. Um, Dad was a GP, mum's a pharmacist, but they just don't want to hear it. They've heard it all before from politicians and they just want him to lean into himself. Um, and as Tom said there, the, the chap who, uh, who, who who said those remarks on the focus group, you know, I'd respect him a little more if he just said, this is why I'm here and this is why I'm talented and this is why I'm the best to do the job. Actions, not sad stories. It reminds me a little bit when, you know, back in, this is going back to, you know, 10 years ago, when people, you know, would watch sort of things like Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor and they go, oh God, I hate the sob stories. It's the same sort of reaction to the politicians. Just get on with the show. Don't tell us a sad story. <laughs> Get on and sing your song. Uh, but interestingly, so, I think one of them had actually heard a bit of Rishi Sunak's speech. This was uh, Tom, I think. Uh, let's take a listen to what uh, he had to say. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. So that was, the, that was, that was what uh, Rishi Sunak said, which then prompted this interesting discussion on gender. I don't mean to offend anyone, but it's controversially probably one of the only things that I agreed with in his speech. 
Um, I was surprised he went for that. I thought, that's, uh, is that the fight you want to fight when there's so much other stuff going on? I thought it was a bit uncalled for. I, I was kind of relieved that someone had the balls to stand up and say that that's what their party believes in. I think that's probably the most honest thing he's ever said. People can identify with who they want to identify with. It doesn't mean I have to believe it. If I had younger children... I'd be very worried about what they're being taught in schools. I've got a friend who's got a child in this class of like 13 year olds. And one of the children now identifies as a dog. Yeah, a dog. Yeah. Well, Jay, <laughs> it's got a long way from Rishi Sunak's uh, speech. But it's interesting that that sort of, I was going to say dog whistle, but I've realised that's the wrong, wrong turn of phrase now. But that sort of, you know, culture war issue doesn't land fairly and squarely with necessarily with with even the people that, that Richard Sinek's trying to reach yeah there's a little bit of nuance I mean I think we always have to be careful with something like this because you know these people know they're going to end up on the radio um so they might be being a little bit careful about what they're saying um I think I think broadly speaking that showed the potential efficacy of the conservatives focusing in on trans come the next election um on trans issues that is um, regardless of the rights and wrongs of that, it's clearly an incendiary issue that people uh, do feel concerned about, especially when it's in relation to schools. Um, and again, it's interesting because it wasn't so much the issue in and of itself that made people feel positive about Rishi Sunak there. It was the it was what it said about him. Yeah. And you heard one of the respondents there say it's the most honest thing he's ever said. Um, you know, some, I'm relieved someone had the balls to say it was another quote. Um, there's this sense of, you know, they like the straight talkingness of politicians when they do that. So, you know, of everything that they'd sort of heard of, of Rishi's speech when we dug into detail, um, although you're absolutely right, it was a nuanced response, it was probably the most positive thing for him out of the conference season. And I suppose the other thing is, you know, you see it all the time when, you know, if we put out things on social media or you go under the line in, in comments, uh, stories on uh, Keir Starmer, uh, which have got nothing to do with the trans issue. People will be saying, I will, you know, much as I might like this or that, I will never vote for him because he can't say what a woman is. And I know he's, he's actually sh shifted his policy, actually, I think, uh, coming under pressure from that. But from the Tories' perspective, where they basically need anything that might stop people switching to Labour, raising the salience of this and putting the spotlight back on, on Keir Starmer... It might be cynical, but it might it, it might work. It might bring a few back. Uh, we should also just talk about what was what Rishi Sunak wanted his speech to be remembered for, which is scrapping HS2 to instead build, amongst other things, Network North. What have they heard about that? I don't think it'll happen, is it? Are they, are they meant to be just updating the stations now? You've got to <coughs> buy your ticket electronically. <laughs> I don't think people really understood what this uh, new travel plan was, John. Uh, James? Well, ex ex exactly, Matt. I mean, again, you know, probably not what Rishi Sunak was hoping for, that Network North has been interpreted to mean, uh, a lot, at least with this focus group, attempted to mean, you know, making, turning manned stations into unmanned stations. Um, not quite the uh, the hope. One interesting thing was there was no, on the other hand, there was no cut through of uh, the proposals being watered down, you know, being called illustrative as they have been since by by the government. Um, so, uh, you know, number 10 can take some solace in that. Uh, but yeah, uh, not being seen as the sort of major uh, long term bold decision that perhaps uh, Rishi Sunak would have hoped for. Yeah. 
I suppose, and I suppose that's because actually saying you're going to build HS2 is at least a single message for the whole country. The problem with, with what they're doing instead is lots of bits of you as a bypass here and a roundabout there and a train station there. And, you know, that's a harder national message to sell as well. James, just remind us who the group are. Mix of undecided voters, Conservative, Labour 2019, now don't know how they'd vote in three key constituencies, Wimbledon, uh, Rother Valley um, and um, uh, Filton and Bradley Stoke. Very good. Right, we've already heard what they thought about the Conservative Party conference. Let's turn to the Labour Party conference now. Uh, nobody, I don't think, had seen Keir Starmer's speech or really anyone else's, but they, one person who did get cut through from Liverpool uh, was the guy with the glitter. Let's uh, find out what they thought about that. He kept himself composed. He handled himself quite well, to be honest. You could see the look of sheer horror in his face. It was very scary for him, I'm sure. Can I just be the first to say that he would have won my vote if he'd have, like grabbed him by the scruff of the neck or even lamped? <laughs> what was the other guy that did that, the one that had eggs? They just think they would have, it's a bit of personality, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Showing that you've got some gravel in you. Good shout out for uh, John Prescott and the egg guy in Will, which is what, 20 years ago? Uh, at least um, he should have punched him would that have helped do you think James is that the sort of thing you'd advise if, you'd, if you were you were advising Keir Starmer honestly I probably probably would <laughs> uh, I think, you know one of their problems with Keir Starmer is that they feel he's a bit of a nothing man you know direct quote from the group um, they, they don't feel like he necessarily stands for anything and he's got a bit of fight in him um, so uh, uh, that's uh, probably um, something that would have, uh, as, as one of the voters said there, give them a little bit of en- encouragement of that. Look, there was sympathy for Keir Starmer, and I think probably the net effect across the country um, has been that more people noticed the speech than, 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 would, than would have if there was no protest. Um, but it, you know, it didn't necessarily, you know, lead them to, you know, having followed the speech in great detail. Uh, um, there was a general sense that, uh, yes, Keir Starmer probably dealt with the protest. Well, it was a bit scary, um, but it hasn't, at least according to this focus group, really sort of changed views of Keir Starmer. Not in the way that it did in 28, uh, 2017 for Theresa May, that one when she was coughing throughout uh, the P45 offered up to her, the letters falling off the board behind her. That generated a real shift in public opinion from being pretty universally negative about her in the focus groups to uh, actually feeling that she was actually quite a resilient politician. Don't think we're going to see the same for Kiss Starmer here. OK, so given that uh, they hadn't seen much of the, the detail of the speech, what about the broader understanding of him or the Labour Party's vision for the country? They don't seem to have a fight. They don't really seem sure. There's nothing definite that what they're trying to sell to the public. I don't like him, to be honest. You know, he's not, he has nothing to offer us. It's very wishy-washy. I don't think he even knows what he believes in. When I just think of his name, Keith, and then all I think is, uh. I was actually looking forward to Keir Starmer becoming Labour lead because I thought this could be a resurgence of Labour, but he's just become this nothingness. There's there's no fight in them. They could they could really fight this because the country is so ready for change. I think. So uh, let's pull all that together. Then, who did they think had the better party conference? Probably Conservative, only because if you haven't got a good leader behind you, then the party's going down regardless, you know. Conservatives had a better one. At least I know where they stand on a few things. All that I can say is that Keir Starmer doesn't like glitter from the other. I think Conservative, I think I would trust Rishi Sunak more than I would Keir Starmer. I don't know an awful lot about Keir Starmer, and I'm not sure why. You know, I'm not 
mad about Rishi Sunak, but if I had to choose, I would choose him. Best of a bad bunch, I think, really, but I would stay conservative. From little things that I have been seeing popping up on social media and the news, it's been pretty much all conservative. So I would say they've got the talking points, so they would have had a better conference. I was a bit surprised. I mean, is that just the nature of being the government, do you think, James? That there's slightly more awareness and cut through of what you're up to? A little, a little bit, but I think it does speak to something that we've always said on the podcast, Matt, on the, on the show, Matt, which is um, that uh, people feel like they need to see something from Keir Starmer. They need to see a plan. They need to see some policies. I think we were saying this even, you know, when we started doing this, uh, what, three years ago. Um, but uh, and, and they still don't feel they've seen it. So, you know, Labour going for a policy like conference um, on the one hand might be savvy because, you know, there's not an election next month, is there? It's a year's time. They've got time to do that. But on the other, it has accentuated this sense that they they might not have a plan. And the longer that beds in, um, that seems the more dangerous uh, for Labour. So I think it's a bit of that. Look, I think it also speaks to what voters are looking for. They're not necessarily examining the individual policies. They're pretty, you know, low information, not that tuned into co- the conference season. But they are looking for that drive and that sense of sort of having a plan. And uh, almost just by getting their views out in and of themselves, even if they weren't wildly popular, the Conservatives have met that test for them and Labour haven't. Of course, as we'll, as we'll, as we'll, we'll soon hear, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily inform how they'll vote. Uh, so, uh, James, you'll be pleased to know the first morons text has come in. Morons, and I don't care how you picked them or whether they represent the British public. If so, they're clearly morons. You know what, Matt? I, I have I have more respect for that view than that we've cooked it up somehow. That's true. It would be great if someone in it, you know, we basically did, you know, where someone in the focus group disagrees violently with someone and has a debate, you know, fine. Um, but, uh, you know, don't doubt the uh, credibility of the focus group. Fine. They, now we're accepting uh, that they are real people who we've we've chosen on the basis that we did. They just are being very judging, calling them more ones. Uh, well, let's move on and find out. This is what uh, they said when you asked them to describe Rishi Sunak in a word. Quietly confident. Wealthy. Re- Excuse. Unbelievable. Untrustworthy. Very, very, very rich. <laughs> very, very, very rich. Um, what can he do to address any of those things? Do you think he's been he's he's done anything to to turn those things around during the COVID season, Jay? No, I don't think so. And I think actually the the lesson for number ten from this focus group from 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 the others we've done over the last few months is that I think that horse has bolted. You know, the public are locked into the view that Rishi Sunak is very rich and very out of touch. Um, what they haven't necessarily decided is whether he's strong or, or or got a plan for Britain. And they're leaning no on that at the moment. Um, but uh, that's somewhere where they can, he can at least persuade them. So if I were him, I would think I'm just going to give up on this. Uh, no more visits to, you know, uh, trying to show your relatability. Um, that clip he did over Christmas, I think on Christmas Eve last year, uh, where he spoke to the homeless man in a homeless shelter and asked him, you know, whether he was in business. Uh, <laughs> that cut through and was mentioned in the focus group. So yeah. I would say, you know, don't try and win this fight. Focus on the ones you can win. Oh, there's more of them coming in. Jim in Bristol, I say it again, where do you find these idiots? Uh, they're not looking for policies or detail. They're looking to be manipulated or fools to deserve what they get. Where do you get these well, people from? People... For heaven's sake, have you checked their mental health first? 
Well, you know, these are the people who are going to determine the next election, and uh, the, the, the weirder people might be people like us, Matt. Who, yeah, uh, I've said it before, you, and I'll say it again. People listening to the show are peculiar. Uh, right, uh, let's find out in the interest of balance what they said when you asked uh, them to sum up Keir Starmer a word. Boring. Hopeless. Drab. Rubbish. Wet fart. Uninspiring. Vanilla. I was not a ringing endorsement, James. No, and it really sort of shows how uh, uh, much of a sort of burden Keir Starmer is to the Labour vote. Um, when we asked for their hesitations about voting Labour, their predominant answer was Keir Starmer. Um, so he's got a lot of uh, uh, baggage with with the voters too. In fact, we can hear a bit of uh, that. Uh, you asked them uh, what would be their biggest hesitation against voting for Labour. So I think actually when you went through, went through them, most of them said they were leaning towards Labour, didn't they? Yeah, and this is a... Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to play it, Matt, but, you know, this is key, you know, that actually all of them said that they would vote Labour uh, come the next election when I pushed them. So, you know, despite everything we've heard about Keir Starmer, despite thinking that Rishi Sunak had the better conference season... They are leaning Labour, and the main reason is it's time for change. So despite everything we've sort of said and, and, and heard on this focus group, this was a good focus group for Labour. If they can lock in these undecided voters, then they're going to storm it. So let's take a listen then. When you when you pressed them for what might what was their biggest hesitation against voting Labour? Let's take a listen. Keir Starmer's all the words that we've described him as. Keir Starmer, I've no faith in him. I, you know, I'll go for Labour, but with him as a leader, I just think, my gosh, what am I doing? I'll vote Labour, however, we need to get a new person in. I have a feeling they'll constantly say, oh, we inherited all this mess from 13 years of, of a Conservative government, so I'm just blaming them, but not making much progress. It's a fear of the change, but I think we need the change. Agreed with the others that someone else needs to be at the helm. I mean, that's tough, isn't it, James? And uh, the Labour Party will be very conscious of that. And I think, I mean, clearly, you know, there's not everyone watches loads of the news. Clearly what's been happening in Israel has bumped down some of the coverage that the Labour Party would have been hoping for. But this was supposed to be a big moment for Keir Starmer this week. And people who say they're going to vote Labour, you know, when pushed, said they'll probably lean towards end up voting Labour at the next election. And the thing that's putting them off doing that is Keir Starmer. Yeah, and you can see where Rishi Sunak will be hoping that if he can make this next election, Rishi Sunak versus Keir Starmer, if he can recover his lot with the public a bit, then then he might be able to to turn things around. That is his best hope, but it is still a narrow one. You know, despite this hesitation about Keir Starmer, in the polls, he is viewed as a better PM than Rishi Sunak, uh, potential to be PM as Rishi Sunak. He is better rated than Rishi Sunak across the board. Um Yes, he's a driver for these undecided voters away from Labour, but ultimately these people were ready to vote for the Labour Party mm. despite, in spite of Keir Starmer rather than because of him. And if they're willing to do that, you know, there's some space there for him to improve. And clearly, he's, you know, he's lots in others who've said they're definitely going to vote uh, Labour. Although, actually, I don't think he did very well on last month's focus group either with Tory to Labour switches. James, always good to speak to you. Uh, James Johnson there from JL Partners with our monthly focus group here on Times Radio. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.